Hey Chatters, and welcome to another episode of Stern Chats. We hit the jackpot this week as we have with us in the studio Lorenzo Fertitta. That's right. Lorenzo, an NYU Stern alum, has worn many hats over the years, but two words that encapsulate his experience are entrepreneur and philanthropist. From owning and operating casinos in Las Vegas, running and turning UFC into a billion-dollar business, and dedicating the Fertitta Veterans Program here at NYU Stern, his journey has been quite remarkable. But we'll let him tell you more about that. Certainly won't be challenging him to an arm wrestle, but I can't wait to get in the ring and talk to him. But first, let's check in with our associate producer, Eric Waters. Eric, welcome back to the studio, man. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. It's been a great episode to be on. It's good to see you. Welcome back. And thank you for laying down the foundation for today's episode. As a producer, would you mind setting the table for today's discussion? Yeah, of course. Uh, this has actually been a, a real pleasure to work on on this particular episode. Um, Lorenzo, as you guys know, is uh, an incredible businessman and, and, more importantly, an incredible alumni. So I'm um, just hearing the passion that he brings to everything that he does, um, whether it's supporting his his schools. You know, he dedicated a football complex to his high school. He dedicated the Fertitta Veterans Programs here at NYU. He built a, a casino for his community in Las Vegas. He's actually focused on people, and he just brings like this drive and energy that it was just inspiring to be around. So last time you were on, you told us about your Florida roots, the motivation to come to Stern. What have you been up to since then? I've been doing a couple things here. I just ran the Pat Tillman Honor Run this past weekend. How'd you do? I, I finished. So Finishing is good. There's something. And uh, the, uh, the, the Pat Tillman Foundation, similar to uh, the Fertitta program, also supports the academic experience for, for military veterans, which is great. Additionally, I've been working on some stock pitches here at the Michael Price Student Investment Fund, which is you know the live investment fund that us students get to learn the process on. And that's been taking up some time. And uh, we've also had a little fun. I participated in the first annual NBA Flag Football Championship. How'd we do? Uh, Stern was victorious. Victorious. That's well right. done. It's uh, an honor to be a part of that team. Uh, did we beat Columbia? We did in the finals. Excellent. That's, that's amazing. But yeah, so, you know, a little bit of sports, a little bit of supporting our veterans, and a little bit of investing slash academics. So, so as uh, I look at you, I see a Florida Panthers hat on. You catch any playoff hockey recently? Yeah. Uh, the Las Vegas Golden Knights actually took our head coach and two of our top scorers in the expansion draft, so they're kind of my Western Conference team now. So you're on the bandwagon. Yeah, I'm, I'm on the ground floor, baby. They swept those, those kings, and uh, I think they're going to go all the way to... To the, to the cup. I wonder if Lorenzo's a fan. We'll find out. Seems like you were really looking to the Fertitas as model alumni. That's great stuff, Eric, and thanks so much again for all your help. Maybe we'll see your name on the walls around here someday, huh? <laughs> That'd be something. All right, Justin, what do you say? Shall we begin? Let's turn up the volume. Cue that music. University Stern Campus, this is Stern Chats, the podcast that tells the hidden stories between the lines of someone's resume. In the interest of serving the Stern community, building relationships, and unlocking important life lessons, we present these stories to a wider audience. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Stern Chats. Today we are joined by Lorenzo Fertitta. Lorenzo, welcome to the studio. Thanks for coming by. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to have you. So before we jump in, it'd be great if you could just introduce yourself to our audience. Yeah. Um, Lorenzo Fertitta. I grew up in Las Vegas, born and raised, actually at a time when uh, Las Vegas was going through a massive growth phase in the 70s and 80s, and you know went on to uh, college at University of San Diego and decided I wanted to go and get my MBA, and uh, lucky enough, Stern decided to accept me. And <laughs> Came all the way out to New York and went from uh, going to school with literally uh, guys 
standing their surfboard outside, you know, and then going to class with no shoes on to New York City. Actually, my first year at Stern was downtown. Is that in right? What we call the old, the old building on mm -hmm. Trinity. Um, much different environment to what we, what you guys have here. And then my second year was the first year that the new building, we call it the new building then, that the building you're currently in uh, was open. And I was the first graduating class, which was the class of 93 uh, of that building. So Went you on. broke it in. I tried, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least our class did. Um, it was great. And then uh, moved back to Las Vegas and uh, kind of joined the family business, which was the casino business. I was actually, I was enjoying your uh, intro music. It, it completely reminds me. Have you guys seen the movie Casino? Yes. We have. It's like the Sam Rothstein show. <laughs> where, where the, the showgirl is up there, you know, you know, talking and introducing Sam Rothstein and all the guests and everything. And That's the, the best compliment you could have given us. <laughs> fantastic. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And then... You know, we we uh, I kind of grew up in the in the casino business, and me and my brother, who are partners in, in everything that we do, um, took over from my father in '93. Actually, when I graduated from Stern, and uh, we built that business mainly focused on the the local residents who live live and work in Las Vegas, as opposed to the tourists. Although we do have hotel rooms, and you know now we do um, cater to tourists as well. But that was our main business was the locals' business, and you know, growing up in Las Vegas. It was it was kind of interesting because typically you know you grow up and there's a professional sports team at least if you live in a major metro uh, major city mm. and um, in Vegas we never had that so you know you become a fan of that that team your dad would take you you know if you live in New York your dad take you to a Yankees game you're a Yankee can't, uh, fan for life in Vegas we never had that but what we always had was we were the the boxing capital of the world. So at a very young age, my dad, you know, took both me and my brother to all the fights. And my first fight, I was nine years old, and I went to see uh, Muhammad Ali versus uh, Leon Spinks wow. at the Las Vegas Hilton. And as you can imagine, just, you know, being young, I was just, I couldn't believe the spectacle. It was great. And uh, after that, I became a huge boxing fan and was lucky enough to grow up in Vegas during the 80s, which a lot of people, boxing historians think it's kind of the heyday of boxing where you had the end of Ali's career and then... You know, the great welterweights and middleweights with uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and Marvin Hagler, Roberto Duran, Thomas Hearns, you know, that whole group of guys. And then uh, you had Mike Tyson come on the scene in the late 80s. So I went to mm -hmm. all those fights. And um, I can even remember, you know, being when I was here at Stern, some of the guys that, uh, you know, I went to school with here, they'd all come over and would watch fights uh, on pay-per-view or whatever it was. I was a big fight fan. And in the late 90s, I was, uh, uh, I actually connected back with a friend of mine in high school um, that I knew real well. He was in the boxing business, but the business of uh, training fighters. Uh, I had served on the Nevada State Athletic Commission, mm -hmm. um, which is the regulatory body that oversees, oversaw boxing and now MMA. And uh, we actually met at a mutual friend's uh, wedding, or met up again, and we started hanging out, and he started training me to just stay in shape. Uh, not necessarily to box. Getting hit and getting punched in the nose is no fun. <laughs> pretty quick. No matter how good at it. No, can. it's never fun. No to users. <laughs> yeah, and and that was kind of our journey and, and where we uh, got the opportunity to uh, purchase the UFC and grew that business for about uh, 15, 16 years and exited that and now off to, off to new things. Well, awesome. That's an incredible life story and we're going to get into all of it on the podcast. Great. I guess just first, what brings you to New York today? 
Um, you know what? I came out. Um, we had a lunch with all of the uh, uh, Fertitta Scholars, which is a program that was set up about a year, year and a half ago, um, which provided scholarships for veterans. Uh, people who had served in the military and were looking for, you know, graduate education and business. And so far, it's been a huge success. Great, great uh, students here at, at NYU that are, um, have contributed a lot and just got an opportunity to kind of visit with them, meet them all, um, had a lunch, and then uh, came back over here. Awesome. Well, that's, again, we'll, we'll talk about the yep. program. It's incredible what you've done uh, just in the last year and a half with that. Random question. Have you ever done a podcast before? I don't believe I have. You know, I was just thinking about that. I've never done a podcast. I did a lot of radio interviews, I think, when I was mm -hmm. at the UFC, um, but never never actually had a formal podcast. So this is my first time. You're a natural. There you go. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about growing up in Las Vegas and working in the family business with your dad. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that was like growing up in that environment, working with your dad, working with your brother, working with your family? Family, mm -hmm. you know, and, and what point did you decide this is something I'd like to stay involved with and commit my career to? Yeah, you know, it was uh, one of those things where the casino business was just our family business. You know, my dad had been working on the strip in various different roles, started as a dealer, actually started as a, as a bellman and then became a dealer and worked his way up. I mean, kind of the perfect American story of starting at the bottom and working all the way up. Yeah, no and the rags to riches story. Yeah, rags right? to riches. The yeah, American I mean, dream. Borrowed 400 bucks to get out to Las Vegas from uh, Galveston, Texas. Wow. And, the one-way uh, ticket, right? Yeah, one-way ticket. That <laughs> was in. it, 100%. And, uh, you know, obviously was very successful in, in that end of it, but he was an entrepreneur at heart. And um, he had this idea that, you know, all the casinos at the time were either located on the Las Vegas Strip or in downtown Las Vegas. And he would find that when him and his buddies would get off of work, maybe they wanted to go grab something to eat, grab a drink, maybe even go gamble, but they didn't want to intermix with the tourists, you know? Mm. So it was kind of like you live here in New York City, you, you don't go eat dinner in uh, Times Square, you know, Planet Hollywood. Skip the bubba gum shrimp. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, so he wanted to create a place for locals. So we built a 5,000 square foot casino, had 100 slot machines, four table games, 90 employees, and that's how it started. And, uh, you know, growing up in that environment, it, I really got a chance to learn from a true entrepreneur, you know, how you think about the business, how you, you're just passionate about every single level of detail that's involved. And um, one of the great things about my dad, um, which I think was truly interesting, was that he was so inclusive for me and my brother, really allowing us to get involved in the business and learn about the business at both, you know, the beginning level and at, at his level. So, you know, I think where a lot of self-made guys, they would look at their, um, you know, their, their kids and say, hey, you know, you got to start at the bottom, just like me, go in the kitchen and start washing dishes. Mm -hmm. My dad was complete opposite of that. You know, he, he wanted us to get the hands-on experience. So, of course, I, I worked in the sports book. I worked in the slot department. I worked in the casino games. I worked in hotel and all those different departments. But he would say, you know what? And this is in the early days of uh, kind of the mid mid to late 80s, early 90s, when the junk bond world had just kind of started. Mm -hmm. And Milken had started oh, what, what he did with uh, Drexel Burnham. He said, hey, Drexel Burnham's coming into town today. They, they want to have a meeting. Come in and sit in the meeting. So here I am, you know, a student at University of San Diego, um, sitting in, you know, with senior people from uh, 
uh, Drexel Burnham or DLJ or Solomon Brothers. And, you know, there was rules. You couldn't, you know, he's like, listen, don't say anything. Just sit there. And <laughs> if you have questions afterwards, you know, feel free to ask. But to have that ability to get that exposure and have an education like that, you know, directly from my father was, was you know, irreplaceable. Yeah, so that's incredible. It's I mean, a different approach, you know. You're in there with the who's who of finance back yeah. then. Like, that's the cream of the crop. So was, was he a tough boss? Not at all. You know, my dad was a really inspirational guy. I mean, he was a true leader. I mean, people loved him. Everybody from, you know, the people, the executives that worked directly with him to, you know, the change girl that, that, that worked on the floor or somebody who worked behind the cage or he knew all the customers. He was a real entrepreneur. And, and I think one of my dad's best qualities is he was a brilliant marketer. You know, he would come up with these um, great ideas and great promotions, which really even today have changed the way a lot of marketing works in Las Vegas just in general. He had a massive impact on, on the marketing kind of thought process in the casino industry. So, Awesome. So you grew up with your brother, obviously. Mm-hmm. What was your relationship like back then? What does what a, a young Lorenzo and a young Frank look like? And, and how has that kind of evolved over this time? Sure. You know, it... First of all, a lot of people they they ask that question, and they always ask, "Do you guys ever disagree? Do you ever did you ever fight?" The answer is, we really never did fight. Mm-hmm. You know, we we never have had that kind of relationship. It's always been very close. Now he was seven years older than me, mm-hmm. which I still don't understand why I have all the gray hair, <laughs> and, and he has like barely any. It makes no sense, but that is is that's what happened. But uh, he was seven years older, so there was enough kind of separation where we really weren't competitive, Mm -hmm. you know, in that way that brothers maybe can be sometimes. And he was also very inclusive, you know. He he taught me how to play football. He taught me, you know, about business. He taught me about a lot of those things. So in a lot of ways, it was both my dad and my brother that were my mentors. Mm -hmm. And you learned from that I looked up to. Yeah, and and you know they're all both very inclusive and uh, you know we built a great relationship along the way we've been like I said partners in everything we do and um, you know look it's just built on mutual respect and and of course we don't always agree on everything but uh, we respect each other's opinion and we always for whatever we, reason we always get to agreement or always get to yes a funny story actually is when we bought the UFC in 2001 we were drafting the documents. And by the way, our, our fancy, expensive attorneys uh, in Millbank were like, what the hell, heck are you guys buying? This is, <laughs> this, you know, you gotta understand, back in 2001, the UFC was a pretty, like, you know, sketchy business. Sure. Like, you know, what are you doing? So we said, no, this is, we got a plan, this is what we're gonna do. And as we were drafting the agreement, you know, me and my brother were 50-50 partners, and uh, they said, well, you gotta put in some kind of a dispute resolution into the shareholder agreement. Like, ah, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. We always figure it out. He's mm-hmm. like, well, y- you really should put something in here. So what we decided to do was, uh, we said, fine, we'll do that. Um, in the event that me and my brother Frank can't agree, the way we re- will resolve it is that we will have uh, one, we will do three rounds, five minutes each, of sport jujitsu. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Dana White, who was you know coming on board with us, will be the referee. And it'll be on the point system. And whoever wins that sport jiu-jitsu match gets the vote the other guy shares. And that's actually in the document. You that has to be a first. Wow. Yeah. That has to be a first yeah, in, so in M&A. <laughs> Did it ever come to that? No, never came to that. We always agreed. So it would have <laughs> been amazing. funny, though. 
Okay, so let's talk about a little bit more about UFC. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw value in the desert, as they say, uh, back around Las Vegas. And, you know, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what drew you to UFC as an investment, as something that you guys were interested in mm-hmm. being a part of, and kind of set the scene for us there, and you said the early 2000s uh, yeah. around the league. Yeah, so we started, you know, it was kind of interesting. I was out one night. Uh, me and my brother were out with Dana White, you know, who I had mentioned. And um, we went to a concert at the Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. And uh, I'm almost embarrassed to say, but I'm going to go ahead and say it because Please I know you're going to ask, what concert did you go to? <laughs> it was Limp Bizkit. So Cue that music. That, oh, that, right. that, that dates me a bit. Um, and, hey, I listen to Limp Bizkit. <laughs> and so he, I see Danny. He goes and he walks up and he starts talking to this guy. And this guy was one of the scariest looking individuals you've ever seen in your life. He had tattoos literally from the top of his neck down to the tip of his toes. And a bit I'm like, intimidating? Yes, yes, a bit intimidating. I'm like, what are you doing? What's going on? <laughs> so I walk up, and it ends up, this guy's name is John Lewis. He's literally one of the nicest guys in the world. Talk about not being able to judge a, a book by its cover. And he was a UFC fighter, and he lived in Las Vegas, and he was one of the, he was the only person that had a uh, dojo or a gym where he taught Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Now, there's one in every corner, right? Everywhere you can probably draw a three-mile, you know, or a one-mile ring in New York City and get 10 in any, you know, any direction that you go. But he was the only one they had in Vegas, so he invited us to come train with him. So we did a private lesson, me and my brother and Dana, and from literally the end of that lesson, we said, when can we do this again? We were completely enthralled with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, just the, um, the art of it, the strategy of it, everything that, that encompassed what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was. Um, and we became crazy about it. And as he was teaching us from time to time, he would bring fighters that he was either friends with or that he was training just to come and help or watch or whatever. So, you know, one day he brings in this guy who's uh, literally one of the scariest guys you've ever seen. He's got a mohawk and a handlebar mustache. It's Chuck Liddell. The guy looks like an axe murderer. I go, what, what you, what's this guy going to kill us here? What's happening? <laughs> So, and then the other guy brings in, he's a big, muscly guy with bleach blonde hair and ends up being Tito Ortiz. He brings in Frank Shamrock. He brings in BJ Penn. You know, these are all before before they were famous, sure. you know, type of situation. And these are household names now. Yeah, now they're household names. So we were hanging out with these guys and me and my brother were kind of closet fans of the UFC and Dana who ended up being our partner in the UFC, started managing a lot of these guys. I had nothing to do with that. We were just fans. And then Dana called me one day and said, look, you know, I've been talking to the owner of the UFC, um, guy's name was Bob Meyerowitz, and uh, he's looking to raise some capital or to sell the company. You should call mm-hmm. him. So I was out of town, but I go, went ahead and I cold called him, started talking to him. He wanted a million dollars for half the business. And... Um, uh, I worked out some special math that I learned at Stern, and I offered him two million for the whole thing, <laughs> and uh, he uh, ended up accepting. So within, you know, I think about sixty days, uh, we owned the UFC. We had no experience in uh, sports, no experience in combat sports, the business side of it. But the thing about it is that we were avid fans. You know, we were passionate about it, and we had an idea. You know, we looked at we looked at combat sports, which for the last hundred years was you know, completely dominated by boxing. Mm-hmm. 
And in boxing, over the last 100 years, they had generated literally billions and billions of dollars, held some of the biggest events around the world. Some of the most famous athletes around the world are boxers. I mean, Mm -hmm. you think about Muhammad Ali, maybe the most famous athlete on the planet at the time, right? Because boxing and fighting sports just in general transcends all cultures and anything. I mean, everybody understands fighting, right? They may not understand football with four downs and 10 yards and penalties or, you know, or cricket or baseball, whatever. But you understand fighting no matter what. We ended up purchasing this thing, and uh, what did the league look like at this time? It was it was pretty rough. Okay. It was pretty rough. In fact, we talked about my father being a, a mentor of ours. It was the only time me and my brother kind of went against my father's wishes. He said no. He said no. He said this is going to ruin the family name. This really? Is, this is an awful, awful thing. It's just got a, you know, John McCain had branded the sport basically human cockfighting, so it doesn't get much right. worse than that. You know, so we had a we had a heavy load. Uh, that we had to lift to, to go forward, but we had a plan. And the idea, getting back to that, is that boxing had, had existed that many years, but there was no brand associated with it. I mean, think about everything in this world. Every product, there's a brand, whether it's water, whether it's coffee, whether it's a podcast. I mean, it could be anything. They all have brands. Boxing had no brand that you really you could build upon. And with the UFC, it was much more similar to other sports where, you know, the brand for football is the NFL, the brand for basketball is the NBA, so on and so forth. So we thought we could brand combat sports. And that's really what we did. We took a branded approach. We put in a structure. We put in, you know, the weight classes. We solved the issue of health and safety, you know, because back in the early days, the reason UFC had a bad name is it was basically a free-for-all fighting. There were no rules. And so we, we fixed that. We ran towards regulation. And uh, at the end of the day, we were successful. It was tough in the early years. For about four or five years, we really struggled. We had to deficit finance it. But we finally turned the corner in 2005 when we were able to get our, our product onto free television in the form of The Ultimate Fighter on Spike TV. And that's really what helped us turn the corner. I like the term you used, you ran towards regulation. I yeah. feel like you don't often hear that, particularly in a business environment you know, here at school as well. And I imagine that's just the importance of getting various stakeholders on board, building this business in the way that you see it. Can you talk a little bit more about that, of just getting yeah. folks on board beyond you know, the consumers and the fighters and everyone that makes up? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, look, UFC or mixed martial arts, which was really the sport, had for the most part been banned in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. So the previous owner, the mistake they made is that they ran away from regulation. So what they would do is they would go to a state and say, hey, we want to book an arena and the the, uh, state regulars would come in and say, hey, you can't do that. You can have a license to do that. And they would point to the regs, which only addressed boxing. You know, a lot of times they would even call it the boxing commission. They say, look, we don't fall within those regs, so you can't regulate us. Well, they may have had a valid legal argument. Um, who knows? At the end of the day, uh, nine times out of ten or pretty much ten times out of ten, when you try to buck heads with, you know, the government, you pretty much lose. The government right? wins. Yeah, the government <laughs> wins. I'll just give you that. I'll give you that right now. That, that, that's what's going to happen. Our um, history is that we were, as I mentioned before, really gaming was was our base business. And the gambling industry is the most regulated industry in, on the planet, even more so than banking or anything else. So from a very young age, I think me and my brother understood the regulatory side of the business. We understood how to deal with regulators. We understood how important it is. So we knew that when we bought the UFC, what we had to do was run towards regulation. And we had to work with the regulators to help create a sport that would be safe, that they would be able to um, 
efficiently regulate. And, and it wasn't just about us because we were just a, a, a business and a brand within a sport. There were going to be other promoters and other businesses. So we wanted to make sure that there were um, safety measures for everybody and standards for everybody because we knew that one of the risks, or we felt like one of the risks was that, you know, God forbid something bad would happen in another show could be called whatever, you know, extreme fighting or whatever, the front page of the paper the next day was going to be, you know, something happened in ultimate fighting and it was going to hurt our brand. So mm -hmm. we took a real leadership approach in trying to help craft those rules and regulations and health and safety standards and all those things. And we knew we had to run towards regation. Starting at your that. founding with the agreement with your brother. The rules were very clearly drawn. The rules were set, <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about that, uh, that kind of environment with your brother. Mm -hmm. um, we talk a lot about here uh, at Stern, uh, when you're going to be an entrepreneur, when you're going to run a company, that's really important to have a partner and maybe a co-founder, whatever it is. Can you talk about you know how you divvied up responsibilities, how you kind of thought about you know the process, how you how you kind of managed running a business and turning it around with your brother? Sure. Um, you know, it, we we kind of have this role where. Um, we're both obviously involved in the casino business. And at the time when we purchased the UFC, I was president of uh, Station Casinos. Frank was CEO, it was a publicly traded company on the New York Stock Exchange. I kind of took the lead on the UFC where he was more the lead on the gaming. Mm -hmm. And uh, then in, I think it was around 2005, 2006 maybe, I uh, ended up leaving Station Casinos and went to UFC full time. And uh, obviously he stayed at Station. He's been the CEO since the beginning. I was the CEO of UFC. And uh, we just communicate on a constant basis. So you're on the phone. We're on the phone. I got constantly. this problem. Help yeah. me out here. He's the, yeah. first, he's the first guy you call. Yeah, and it's kind of, it's and, and one of the things is that I was never afraid to say, and I don't think he's ever afraid to say, you know, I can't give you the answer. I want to talk to my brother about that. You know, some people feel like they got to make the decision or whatever. That couldn't be further from the truth. It could mm -hmm. be anything. And I say, hey, I, I want to talk to my brother Frank about that. And you know, pick up the phone, call him. Hey, what do you think? And he would do the same thing on the casino side. And like I said, we just communicate, talk all day long. And uh, sometimes I'd say, hey, I'm going to drive up and talk to you because we were about 20, 25 minutes apart by mm -hmm. car. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's just what you do when you're partners, you know, it's just, so it's just about when respect. And I want to get his, sometimes it's good to get a, a point of a different point of view too, just from somebody that's maybe not so close to what's going on. Yeah. An outside know? perspective. An outside mm -hmm. perspective. Yeah. So you go to University of San Diego and you study business undergrad and yes. you decide to pursue an MBA and you choose Stern. Uh, what were some of the reasons and motivations behind that decision to pursue your MBA? And then why specifically did you come to New York? Well, you know, first of all, I I just felt like that uh, there was going to be a lot of value in getting an MBA. I mean, obviously, I mean, even at times for me, I, I question whether or not, uh, in hindsight, I should have been a business major undergrad. Um, not taking anything away from it, obviously, it's good. But I think, you know, maybe in the undergraduate years, you should maybe focus on different things and explore different things. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more to life than just finance. Did I say that? No. Um, but... And it was great. Education at the University of Indiana was great. But I wanted, I just wanted to uh, go to Stern. And the thing I liked about Stern was um, its uh, focus and reputation in finance. And looking at all a lot of the different MBA programs, the thing I liked about Stern was the classes that they offered were so detailed. Like you could look at, you know, Darden at Virginia 
or Northwestern, and they'd have a finance course or a corporate finance course. And at NYU, you could take an entire class in options mm-hmm. or an mm-hmm. entire class in just fixed income valuation. And I thought that was interesting to be able to really focus and get detailed you know, uh, classes and, and learn that way. So that's sort of what attracted me, plus it being in New York City. and You're in the hub. Uh, that'd be great. You're in the hub. Yeah, everything, yeah. you know, that's that's one of the reasons why Stephen Steven and I yeah. came here as well, is that this is the place to be if you want to go into the finance field. It is, and it's no bad deal living in New York for two years. So, so right. how, how was it back then when you got to, to Stern? How was it living in New York? How was it? Oh. You know, describe, describe that environment for us. I mean, for me, it was a big change. You know, like I said, I'm a West Coast guy. I went to school in San Diego, grew, born and raised in Las Vegas. Um, and New York was was exciting, you know. It was, I mean, this general area here was a little bit different, you know. It was uh, the village back in, in the late 80s and early 90s was was a little bit different. But, you know, it was, it was fine. I, I enjoyed it here. Do you have any good stories to tell about Stern? I mean, we talk about going to Beer Blast. We talk about going <laughs> on They're the still tracks. doing Beer Blast, huh? Oh, yeah. A story tradition here at Stern. Yeah, that is. Yeah. You know, the great thing about Stern is just, as you guys know, met a, just great, great friends. You know, a great, great group of people. And, and, you know, you end up spending so much time together because you're always studying together. You're in group projects together. And, uh, you know, the great thing is as you go on in your careers, you end up bumping into a lot of these uh, classmates that you have. You end up doing deals with a lot of the classmates that you have. Mm-hmm. And you kind of, you know, create lifelong friendships. Uh, any crazy stories? Gosh, I don't really think there were that many cra- any crazy stories. I, ha- I had to study when I was here. I mean, it wasn't, it didn't, you know, school... You know, obviously, I got through it, got decent grades, but it wasn't. You know, some people just are school's easy for them, mm-hmm. and they have extra time. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any extra time. I was trying to figure out how I was gonna. Get you were you were hitting the books. In the you books. were in the library. Yeah, the law library. I spent a lot of time in the law library for sure. We have a library here. I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned the Fertitta Veterans Program at the yep. top of the program, and just be curious to know, you know, what was the inspiration behind that program, and just talking us through, you know, why you. Focused on the veterans community at large, and you know what you've been able to to receive from that program. You know, one of the great, you know, as as our journey, our journey with me and my brother when we you know bought the UFC, we met so many great people and were exposed to so many great things around the world. And one of the great things was uh, we met the uh, the Fisher family, who is a big real estate development family here in uh, New York City, who have always been huge supporters of the U.S. military. And we were invited by them to attend the opening of a Fisher House in uh, San Antonio at the base, the military base that's there. And um, through that, uh, they had asked us to bring some of our UFC talent with us because they were going to do some tours in the uh, military hospital in uh, San Antonio. And I'll say it was, it was really an eye-opening experience and quite touching. We went to the hospital, went you know, through the burn unit, which was just you know, very, very tough you know, to get through to see the veterans there and what they were going through. And then all the rehab facilities and everything that they have. And we were just we were really touched and really, really impressed. So through that and our involvement with the UFC, we got very involved with the military to the point where we actually held, I believe, four events um, on military bases just for military. I think we started at Miramar. We did Miramar, Fort Hood, uh, Fort Bragg, and we did uh, a base in, uh, I think, Kentucky. And the event would be broadcast live around the world, and obviously on at the time it was on Spike, and then broadcast live around the world. And all the proceeds from the event, all the revenue generated, 
we would donate to the Intrepid Fallen Heroes Fund. Mm -hmm. That's with, incredible. Which is, you know, the Intrepid, which is based here, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, on the west side here in New York It City. is. I've been on that. But yeah, yep. pretty cool. And it's a great, they're a great organization. And uh, I think we've raised, I don't know, $10, 11000000 million for them over the years. So that was that was great. I mean, that's a big sum of money. money. It, yeah, that's, no, that's it a, was. That's really impressive. It was, it was a great thing that we got involved with. And then. Uh, became friends with um, Marcus Luttrell, mm -hmm. who is uh, widely known for uh, his book, The Lone Survivor, and then the movie that they produced with Mark Wahlberg called mm -hmm. The Lone Survivor. A colleague of mine uh, who works with us, Pat Lewis, was one of the founding members of the Lone Survivor Foundation and served on the board. And uh, so we just kind of always had this interconnection and wanting to support the military. And then when I was talking to the dean at the time, Dean Henry, I told him I wanted to do something uh, significant for, for NYU and for the Stern School, and uh, I believe he and, and uh, um, some of the faculty here, our, our administration here, I think Dean Ragu, um, mm -hmm. came up with the idea of this uh, scholarship fund to help veterans be able to uh, come to Stern. And when he presented that to me and my brother, you know, we were talking about a couple different ideas, but that one really stuck with us and, and made sense based on, you know, where we had supported from a philanthropic standpoint historically. And the other thing we loved about it was it was something that was going to provide almost immediate results, you know, mm -hmm. an incoming class. Um, you're going to be able to uh, really make an impact uh, right away. So we like that too. Absolutely. Quick note for our listeners, uh, Frank Ruccio, our founder uh, of Stern Chats, was a graduate fellow in the original program in 2016. Oh, great. Yeah, so um, incredible program. Thank you on behalf of everyone here. Incredibly generous uh, of you. So just looking forward uh, for the Veterans Program, what is it you want to see in the next five, ten years for that specific program? Well, I think, you know, one of the things we talked about is we'd like to see it grow. You know, we'd like to obviously get, get more participants. And I think one of the great things about it is it's also a great differenti differentiator for the Stern School, mm -hmm. you know, from a competitive standpoint. I'm sure that, you know, w what we see is or what I think Stern sees is that uh, veterans are great candidates. Um, they're great students, obviously. They're, uh, they've been through the whole military process, the military program. Mm -hmm. and, and there's a lot of great attributes that come with that. So they make great MBA students. And great employees. And, and great employees mm -hmm. and, and successful people down the road that hopefully will you know, c come and give back to the program um, as they are successful. So, so what's a lesson you know, you've learned throughout your business career? throughout all the ventures you've been involved in that you don't necessarily get in a business school text that you could share with us today? Wow. Um, there's many. There really are many. Um, but I'll, I'll try to go through a couple that kind of come to the top of my mind. Uh, first and foremost, and I don't want this to come off the wrong way, but one of my things is, I, and this is true, I never want to feel like I'm the smartest guy in the room. I really, truly feel like that mm. that's, that's a bad thing. I, I always like to surround myself with, with super smart people. Um, I've been in a couple situations where I felt like, uh, particularly in some M&A deals that we were doing, one with a, a massive media company, and I felt like that we were just out, we didn't have the horses, we, didn't, we, were, we were outgunned. And uh, I said, you know, I need to go out and beef up our, our finance team, our M&A team, to really, you know, help, because I was sitting there going, wait a second. I'm in trouble. I feel like I'm leading the leading the charge here in the negotiations. I need to. I need some help. So that's one. And just you know, never be afraid to hire somebody that's smarter than you. I, and unfortunately, a lot of times it could be in startups, it could be in business, just in general, is that are that people 
people tend to shy away from that. Sometimes they look at it as a, uh, you know, like they're so competitive or they see it as a threat. They don't want to bring somebody on that's maybe as, as smarter, if not smarter than they are. And, and I actually evaluated a lot of my department heads and executives in that way too, is kind of what type of people are they hiring? You know, mm. what's the quality of the people that they're hiring? Um, That's really smart. I mean, they, yeah. they, you want the best people in your firm. Yeah. You want to go, ahead, you know, encourage your people to bring those people, you know, into into your uh, into your ecosystem. Absolutely, I think that's I, I think that's very very important. I always I always think too that you know, it's always good to have that kind of what they call collaborative process. Mm-hmm. You know, I like to I, I my style was I like to get perspectives from a lot of different people and get their ideas and get their thoughts. Obviously, you know, you're you're not running a democracy. It's not how it, how it should work when you're running a company. You know, you have to have somebody there that's going to make the final decision. And obviously, once that final decision is made, everybody's got to get, get on board whether they agree or don't agree to help, you know, kind of go in that direction. So that's uh, that's important. Geez, other, other lessons. Well, we actually, so a lot of people here at Stern, obviously, are recruiting for M&A, venture capital, yeah. private equity, you know, just generally being an investor or working in and around the financial services industry. So, you know, having gone, you know, having been a student here, having been, you know, incredibly successful as an investor, what advice would you have for those students coming out of business school? Listen, at the end of the day, and a lot of the stuff everybody's heard before is kind of cliches, cliche-ish. You know, you got you to gotta do what you, what you love, what you're really interested in, and that kind of what makes you tick. And sometimes, I mean, maybe what you think is for you, you know, after you go out and do it for a little while, may not be for you. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing is you can't be afraid to go out and take risk, you know. And uh, that's really a lot of times the only way you're going to get the return that you're looking for from a from your own personal perspective as well. Sometimes you, you know. have to get in the ring, right? Sometimes you got to get in the ring. Sometimes you have to try Brazilian gotta, Jiu-Jitsu. You got to mix it up. Yeah. I mean, speaking of passion, I mean, you were a fan. Yeah. You were able to enter this into this business where clearly your passion lied. Uh, you know, you've seen it all. You've seen the growth, the funding, selling the company. You know, what were some lessons and maybe some of the biggest challenges of riding that roller coaster of building UFC into the league that it is today? Yeah. Well, I think one of the, the really big things, and I've actually seen it here recently um, on a couple of deals that we've looked at as we started for Tita Capital and we're looking at some different deals. You've got to make sure if you're, you're in a startup or you're starting a company, you've got to have enough funding. So I've seen these companies where they've got a good product and then you know, they get a little bit, I don't want to use the word greedy. I don't know that it's greedy, but you get the momentum and, you know, everybody wants to continue to do up rounds and nobody wants to do a down round. And then they hold out and then all of a sudden, boom, when the funding dries up and then they're done. Mm-hmm. So it, you got to make sure that your your business has enough oxygen to survive. And the, the correlation back to the UFC is that we had some very, very tough years in the early days. And if it wasn't for the fact that we were able to have enough capital to kind of see the, the bad days through to the good days, I mean, if we would have run out of capital in 2004, UFC might not exist. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody else may have picked it up and tried to do something with it, but maybe it wouldn't exist in the sense that it does today as far as what it is today. So being properly funded, having enough liquidity, uh, I would say overfinance yourself, at least in the early days, until you you know at least get stable and your ability to grow is, is kind of set intact. That, that's one of the big things that, that we lived. I think, you know, the other thing is um, you got to prepare for the growth. I mean, one of the challenges that I have seen and that I actually had with myself both in the casino business and my brothers had in the casino business and we've had with the UFC is we're entrepreneurs at heart. 
And when you're an entrepreneur, um, you're in a startup, and you're involved in every little detail of everything, at every, everything. And then as you start to grow, you have to figure out, how do I continue to effectively manage the organization, um, but I can't be involved in every little thing all the time. So in the casino business, we had one casino. We were at that casino every day. It was a sole proprietorship. Um, we were there on the weekends. We were walking the floor. We were checking the restaurants. We were making sure the customers were happy. Now we have 18. It's impossible. You know, I'm lucky if I get to you know one, a casino once a month or once every other month. So you have to build the right infrastructure to be able to manage all this stuff. But, but I still believe that there's always a handful of things in every business that are very simple, that are very core to the success of that business, that as the CEO, you have to make sure that you're in tune with and that you're involved with. And for instance, to this day, my brother is still involved in every detail of the marketing plan, even to the minutia of what offers go out to slot customers in their mail package on a monthly basis, whether they get you know, a point multiplier on a Tuesday or they get free points on a Wednesday to cash back on a Thursday, he's involved at that level. In addition to that, hotel making sure that you're pushing your rev par, your cash cash sales and hotel. And then third, just making sure that, you know, uh, customers are happy, the places are clean. So there's always a few boxes you gotta, you gotta check off to make sure they're successful. Same thing with the UFC. For me, it was no matter what you're doing, we started, we were doing, I think five events a year and then we peaked out at 48 events a year. You can't go to everyone, you can't be involved in every little detail, but, you know, I approved, either me or Dana approved every piece of uh, advertising that went out, every commercial, every poster, everything. Now, people say, how important is that? Well, to me, that was kind of the ethos of the company. We're a marketing promotion company, you know, and that commercial or that piece of key art had to be reflective of what our brand was. The other thing was a matchmaking. You know, I'd hold a, a weekly matchmaking meeting, have the right people in there, and either me or Dana or both of us would approve every single match. And then also in the UFC, I was involved in every every fighter or majority of all the main fighter negotiations. Obviously, you know, maybe not some of the, the younger guys that were first coming in, but the key relationships, you know, mm-hmm. kept them with the John Jones, the Conor McGregor's, you know, the uh, Chuck Liddell's, you know, all the, all the kind of the big stars and keeping that direct relationship with them. And then the last thing was the actual show itself. I mean, Dana or myself would actually continue to do rehearsals the Friday night before the event. I mean, we had done literally a thousand events. You say, why do you have to do another rehearsal? Just because you do. Everyone. If you, if you want it to be perfect and you want it to be great, it has to be perfect. And uh, so there's just there's there's a handful of things that you always, as an owner, have to continue to be involved with, in my opinion. So if I were to draw a line connecting all the examples that you just gave, it would be everything involved with the customer experience, right? Whether it's the marketing, the advertising, or who, you know, who goes out for a match. So how, is, how important is it as a brand to stay in contact with your customers, to always keep them in mind, and kind of put them at the center of what you're doing? It's everything, and you're right. That, that's the connectivity that, that I was talking about. It's all about the, the customer at the end of the day. You gotta make sure that you're giving, you understand what the customer wants, right? And you're giving the customer what they want. I mean, I think that's one of, I mean, you talk about even the success of our partner, Dana, I mean, and his ability to understand 
what that demographic that he's appealing to, what they want, what is the product they're looking for, what are the matches they want, how do they want it to be produced. You know, we actually want an interesting thing. Sometimes in business, you think something is out there that's going to make you super successful and that's your goal. So you run towards it and then you find out that it's really not. And the example I'm going to give is that, you know, when we started the UFC, our dream was to have fights on HBO because HBO was like, kind of like the gold standard. That's where all mm -hmm. the big boxing matches were. And we're like, gosh, if we were able to get on HBO, man, we would have really made it. And then we had some success. We were successful on, uh, on Spike TV and then all of a sudden HBO came knocking. Like, wow, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be on HBO. Mm -hmm. So we go fly up to New York, put on our fancy suits. We go over to Time Warner Building or to HBO. We meet with them, and uh, they say they want to do a deal, and we start negotiating a deal. And the money was, was you know, it was okay. It was fine. You know, kind of worked for us, worked for them. And then they came out. They wanted to come out and go to one of our events and bring their whole production team down. So the event was down in uh, in Florida at the Hard Rock uh, Casino down in South, South, I think around Miami in that area. And they were in the back, they were going through the trucks, they were going through our production, they were checking everything out. And uh, at the end of it, uh, we had a phone call like the following week and they're like, yeah, everything's great. We wanna go forward and do this deal, but this is what we wanna change in production. And it was basically everything. You know, and that's when me and Dana said, whoa, 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 wait a second. Maybe we don't want to do this HBO deal because we're not willing to give our our brand over to HBO. We don't want the UFC to look like HBO boxing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. HBO boxing at the time was for like the older generation. Mm -hmm. UFC was for the younger generation. And they wanted to change the things that we thought made us successful. So we broke all the rules in production. You know, for instance, um, when we would come on air, we would have this massive sound system blasting in the background. And Joe Rogan is, you know, when he gets on air, he's yelling into the mic so much, you can literally <laughs> see his veins bulging out of his neck, you know, and he's yelling, and this is going to be the greatest uh, fight tonight. And if you go watch HBO and you're in the arena, it's quiet because they're proper. You know, they have their suits on and they're saying this match tonight's going to be, you know. This is tradition. This is tradition, you know. So and we're like, wait a second. Our customers, getting back to the customer and our demo, they're not going to understand that. They're, we're going to. So we ended up, long story short, we had a deal to do a fight on HBO and we said no, we didn't do it. And it was probably the best decision we ever made. We went on our own route. And uh, it's funny how, you know, goals and things can change over time. Mm -hmm. So you, we talked a lot about the people that make up these organizations. You talked about surrounding yourself with smart people. It's a family business, working with your brother. How important is the people and the, the human capital that make up these organizations? And, and what do you look for? And what type of environment do you like to create for people to come work for yeah. you? It's the most important thing. And it's not it, it's the people, but it's also the, uh, the mix of people, making sure that it's, it's no different than a team. Everybody's got to kind of gel. Everybody's got to kind of fit together. They don't always necessarily need to agree, but people need to play different roles. You know, you can have the skeptic, you can have somebody that's maybe a little bit more uh, aggressive on ideas. And as long as everything kind of fits together and they work together as a team and everything moves forward, then that's good. And you know in an organization when you have the right mix and you have the right people. And I feel like, you know, we really had that at the UFC. Not always all the time, but Eventually, we got there, and, and the type of people we liked is 
it's kind of a cliche, but I call them killers. You know, people that, that, that get up and they're obsessive and they don't even think about what the hour of the day is or, or what's happening. It's kind of a, a get it done under any circumstance attitude. And, uh, you know, they, they, they come to work, you know, ready, not ready to sit down behind their desk and have a cup of coffee and read the Wall Street Journal. Mm-hmm. By the time they get to the office, they're, they're there to make an impact and make something happen and make a difference in the business. And uh, They're hungry. They hungry, come to work and they want to they like, get after it. We, we were able to um, attract, over time, some super, super great people. And uh, like I said, I mean... And, and in a way, at the UFC, we're a bit of a, a traveling carnival, too. So it really was not easy, especially if you had a family or whatever it was. But a lot of these uh, executives and just people in general were super committed, traveling to Brazil, going then to mm-hmm. London and doing fights in Asia and Australia. And it's a big commitment. But they loved it. They loved what they were doing. They loved being part of that kind of thing, part of that family. And uh, you know, when you have a great organization, you just feel it. It's all happening. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So... Transitioning now, kind of looking forward, what's next for for you? That's a good question. Well, right now, I have been involved uh, with Red Rock Resorts, um, the casino company that that me and my brother are part of. Frank is the uh, chairman, CEO. I'm the vice chairman. Uh, One of the fun things is the design development part of it. And we acquired a new property in uh, October of 2016 called The Palms. Mm -hmm. The Palms had uh, quite the history. It was uh, built in 2001, owned by the Maloof family, who also owned the Sacramento Kings at the time. George Maloof was the, uh, there was a, uh, I think it was three or four brothers, three brothers and a sister. He was the the one that kind of spearheaded the casino development with The Palms. Uh, famous in the sense that they had uh, uh, the real world reality show on MTV at the Palms and it was a big success there and that kind of launched the Palms and it was really you know right now in Las Vegas it's crazy when I grew up casino gaming made up like 70-80% of the revenue now it's flipped where food and beverage and retail and everything up else make up like 70% and gaming's like 30% Um, and it was really really the first party hotel you know with the nightclubs and everything else and then uh they did an expansion uh, which opened right around 2009 2010 which was a kind of in the eye of the storm uh from an economic standpoint and unfortunately he ended up losing the property and uh it was for- foreclosed upon by a private equity a group called leonard green and they operated the property from 2010 to 2016 when we ended up purchasing it in 2016 so um, we've announced that we're doing a, a pretty aggressive expansion plan there or I should say renovation plan there where we're literally redoing every aspect of the casino adding restaurants new nightclubs a new pool development and uh, the first phase of that will open uh, kind of in mid-may uh, may 17th around there and um so i've been working on that and that's been a lot of you're fun. not slowing down either well you know you, you never got everything on your plate. Uh, my wife keeps telling me you said you were going to retire <laughs> well, yeah like, sort of um so we got that going on which is a lot of fun looking forward to that and then we also me and my brother started a, a kind of a direct investment platform private equity uh, group for lack of a better word um, called Fertitta Capital it's based out of LA and really um, what we're doing there is uh, we're looking at various different opportunities different businesses trying to focus on things that we think we understand you know entertainment technology media sports mm-hmm. and uh, so far it's been it's been very interesting you know it's it's a pretty frothy world out there uh, at least on the private side it has been uh, uh, we started about a, a little over a year ago 
and uh, we've we found a couple of different things that that we've invested in, but just trying to be disciplined and take our time and wait for the right opportunities. As we begin to wind down the program, you know, if we think about the Stern community here, and you have a lot of people that are getting ready to graduate and enter into the real world, and I think we hear your story and are very inspired and motivated by the things that you've been able to do. What advice would you have for an outgoing MBA student as we enter the business world? Wow. Um, Advice is always a very dangerous thing, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Look, I think it's it, the fact that you're going to be coming out of of your of the MBA program in today's environment, today's world is incredibly exciting. I mean, I think back to '93 when I graduated, and I thought that was pretty exciting, and it wasn't anywhere near what's happening in the world today. When you think about just technology, how rapid technology is changing things and, and it's interconnecting into everything, whether it's finance and media, I mean, sports, you know, everything is being touched by technology. So obviously, you know, in some sense, I wish I had a better background in technology or at least understanding. I'm not saying you have to be a tech guru, but, you know, my advice would be no matter what what you're going to focus on or what industry you're, you're going to be in, you should have, you need to have a a grasp and an understanding of that. And I think just in general, your generation probably does anyways because you grew up with technology where my generation didn't. But even just having some sense of whether it's basic understanding of of coding or, or any of that, you know, just to understand. Because even in, you know, in the investing world, obviously on the private equity side, we see a ton of different deals. And uh, kind of goes back to my theory of make sure you surround yourself with smarter people than you. I've got <laughs> a lot of smart people that work there uh, that can, can, can help that and understand the technology side of the business. But I wish I had a, a, a better background there. I think that's it. I mean, and just, just the obvious, you know, you, you got to be passionate about what you do and never do anything first for money. Obviously, it sounds great and everything else. And, but you do it because you love it and you have a passion for it. And and. You will become successful, and then then the the fruit of your labor will come. I mean, people. We would say all the time we didn't get involved for the UFC uh, with the UFC to make money. We really didn't. People laugh at you. Yeah, right. No, seriously, it was about being passionate about wanting to build a sport, wanting to help set that infrastructure up, wanting to be a part of that entire movement. And you know, along the way, we were lucky enough to uh, build a successful business and lucky enough to be able to exit the business and, and make money. And I think that's the biggest thing. Like everything else, you gotta, you gotta love what you do or else it doesn't work. Absolutely. So, um, last thing, we heard that you had a family member here at Stern. Uh, we, I do. I do. Victoria Fertitta. She's a first year. She's, uh, I think loving it here. She's, um, I just talked to her, had dinner with her last night and she said she, Loves your classes, great professors, and so I was happy to hear that because that was the same experience that I had here. So, fantastic. fantastic. Well, Lorenzo, thank you so much for coming onto the program and sharing your advice, your career, your insights. We really appreciate it, and thank you as always too for contributing back to the university in the way that you have. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me here. Thank you. That's a wrap. All right.